last I was with you as we worked through teaching the gospel of John, specifically with an eye toward finding the Old Testament in places, we have made it through John's prologue. That's that introductory section of John. Unlike the other three gospels, you've got three gospels that sort of see things the same way. The technical theological word for that is synoptic, optic, the way they see it soon together. They see things the same way by and large. John is the straggler that was written late to supplement, to give some added understanding and theology and to give some additional information and stories. So John writes his gospel later in time, and John gives us a fuller picture than we get with the other three gospels. Among the uniquenesses of John is this prologue section that we looked at. The other gospels just jump right in. Oh, they may jump in with genealogy or something like that, but they just jump right in. John gave that extended prologue and we covered it. Another uniqueness of John is found toward the end of the gospel. And I want to start our class with a look at that today. In John chapter 20, the last two verses of John, John tells his readers why he wrote his gospel. Why? He selected the seven miracles he selected for his gospel. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I'd love to tell you that I have secretly over here the original signed copy of John's gospel. But I don't. Nobody does. (laughs) that, That paper didn't last that long, okay? Although we actually have, uh, it's called the John Ryland's Fragment P52. We actually have about a fragment about that big from John's Gospel that the nice, dry, arid sand of Egypt allowed to exist long enough for us to find it. And it was a copy that was made within about 25 or so years of the original Gospel, maybe even quicker than that. We've got a lot, a lot, a lot of early manuscripts where people had recorded, rewritten the gospel. And among those, there is a change that happened somewhere in the gospel. And that change is one that makes a difference how you translate this verse. So this verse says... Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By the way, Richard, I have sound today. We didn't hook this up for sound, did we? Ah, we'll make it work. Um, 
So here's, here's what we've got here. For those of you, we do have a few Greek students in here, a few Greek scholars. Let's go to the Elmo if we could, please. Have we got the Elmo up there? The IPVO, not an Elmo, excuse me. We don't have it? Maybe? Hello? No? Okay, well, forget that part of the lesson. Let me, t- let me tell it to you in a way that will make it absolutely unsensible to you. There is a Greek verb, pistuo. Pi, iota, sigma, tau, epsilon, upsilon, omega. Pistuo. Say it. Pistuo. Do you know what you just said? I believe. Say it, pistuo, pistuo, I believe. Now, you can change the end of that. Pistuite means y'all believe. Pistuite, y'all believe. Now, that's present tense. We could put that into a different Tense in the Greek, the aorist. We could also, oh, are you like getting this? We don't know. That's all right. Look, I'm not going to give you the Greek lesson. Here's the bottom line there's either an S in there or there's not at one specific point in that word, a sigma. And I don't think it's in there. The earliest manuscripts don't have it in there. And if it's not in there, then we would translate this so that you may continue to believe. In other words, John's written to people who already believe, but it's just to confirm them in their faith. And I think John is such a sophisticated gospel in so many ways that that's probably what it is. But I think somewhere along the line, some pe- so many people realized how useful John is to introduce people to Jesus that they thought, well, maybe somebody miscopied it and left out that S. So that it means in order that you, it might confirm, uh, and not just confirm you in your belief, but that you might come to this belief, if it's an aorist subjunctive, for those who are detailed people. In other words, th- this is the difference between John having written his gospel for you to believe, or for you to come to belief. Now, why does that matter to us today? It doesn't. I mean, it really doesn't. Either way, the question remains the same. And let's see if we can get this to work on sound from here if I loan it my microphone. You ready? Here's, here's the question. You got it? That's good enough. Fade to black. Thank you to Pete Townsend and the Hoop. That's the best use that song's ever been put to. And probably the only time it's ever been played in church. And that's about the only section we're going to play of that song in church. So that's the only part anybody remembers anyway. (laughs) Who are you? Came out my senior year of high school. Who are you? Whether you take that verb tense as an aorist or a present. 
you still are confronted with this question, who is Jesus? And John is still writing his gospel to answer that question, who is Jesus? It's a question all of us should ask. I don't care if you believe in him or not. You still ought to ask the question. Say, I don't give a rip about religion. I don't care. Do you ever fill in the date? If you fill in the date, you're referencing Jesus. Unless you're using an Eastern calendar. You might even be using the Jewish calendar, but most people who fill in the date on most forms today don't use either an Eastern or a Jewish or a Norwegian or any other calendar except the Western calendar. And that's, what year is it? It's 2019. That's based on Dionysius Exegus's bad math of when Jesus was born. I, Jesus has influenced more people in this world, I dare say, than anyone else. So, well, what about Muhammad? Well, first of all, Muhammad doesn't come around for another 600 years. And second of all, Islam recognizes Jesus and he's in the Quran anyway. Jesus has influence. So I think it's worthy of saying, now you may, your answer may be, well, he's this uh, guy who lived in the hill country of Judea back 2,000 years ago and he was a carpenter and then he spent a couple of years as a vagabond preacher wandering around being a nice guy and he got idealized afterwards by a bunch of fishermen who somehow took over the world. Okay, that may be your answer. But you're still needing to ask the question. It's a fair question to ask. No one should run from it. And John is written to provide confirmation of the answer or Proof of the answer, depending on how you read that passage in John 20, 30, 31. So the segment of John that we're looking at today, we need to look at in frame of who is Jesus. And I want to talk about it from the testimony of three different people in the first section of John after the prologue. We're going to talk about the testimony of John the Baptist. We're going to talk about the testimony of Andrew. We're going to talk about the testimony of Nathaniel. And all of them agree that Jesus is the Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, the Son of God. Let's look at those three together, okay? First, John the Baptist. John the Baptist says Jesus is the greatest one. John the Baptist says Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Am I going to have Elmo, you think? Maybe. Maybe? All right. It's just kind of like makes a difference in whether or not I put this here. Well, it's not working yet. All right. You're a gem if you can pull that off, which is pretty good considering his name's Rick. <laughs> but we'll talk about name changes in a moment. John the Baptist himself was a pretty special fella. And you got to remember, when John the Baptist is in his mother's womb, an angel of the Lord descends in bodily form, tells Elizabeth, 
The child in your womb is no ordinary child. He is a child who is a fulfillment of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is on your child. John the Baptist's dad's a priest. His dad gets a visit. And as a result of his dad's, uh, some might say, skepticism, his dad's basically struck mute, deaf mute, until the birth of John. John's pretty special. I don't know how many of you have children. How many of you were children? Okay, that's a bigger number. Those of you who were children, how many of you think that an angel of God made a deliberate bodily appearance to your parents before you were born, informing them that you were the answer to prophecy given hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. If you raise your hand on that one, we've got some counselors on staff that would like to (laughs) see you and your messianic narcissism. It's just not ordinary. John the Baptist is incredibly special. Yes, he's incredibly special because as Matthew 3, 4 says, he went out and, and lived in the wilderness and he dressed funky and he ate wild honey and locusts which I'm still wanting to ask him one day if those thin legs get stuck between your teeth. Because they didn't have dental floss. But this guy was strange. That's not why I say he was special. I say he was special because of what Scripture says about him. I'm going to read it out loud, and I'm sorry I can't show it to you this morning, but it's not the fault of our tech team. Tech is one of the best schools in the country. (laughs) This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They wanted to know who he was. Now, the priest probably kept an eye on him because they knew he was Zachariah's kid and Zachariah was a priest. But he sure wasn't following in his father's footsteps. He was not serving in the temple. He's out in the wilderness quoting scripture and baptizing people. And lots of people are coming up to him. Now, baptizing people The Jews had mikvahs. They had baptismal areas. Though he's baptizing in the Jordan. The Jews, this is about the time the Jews started baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism. Jews would baptize, wash themselves, ritually immerse themselves in ritual cleansing. But people didn't baptize other people. It's like a self-baptism. You walk down into the mikvah and you walk back out the other side. Or you are immersed as a Gentile and you come out a Hebrew. 
Jew. But John's actually doing it himself. Bit weird. What's more is a whole bunch of people are coming out there and it's not Jews just self-washing as a ritual. It's not Gentiles being baptized into Judaism. He's baptizing Jews for the remission of their sins. This is like new stuff. So the priests need to know what's going on. They're in charge of Judaism. Renegades cause nothing but trouble. So they send them out and they say, well, who are you? He confessed. He did not deny. He never said he was anything anointed himself. He said, I'm not the Christ. They said, okay, are you Eliyah? Are you Elijah, as we say in English? Now, the, the last Old Testament book to be written was the prophet Micah. And at the end, Malachi, excuse me, Micah, sorry. Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, it's, it's in, in our Bibles, it's the book right before the New Testament starts. That's not the way the Hebrew Bible is ordered. That would be Second Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible. But in our English Bibles, the very last two verses of the Old Testament say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The last prophetic words of the Old Testament are prophetic words that Elijah is going to come in that great day of the Lord. Great and awesome day of the Lord. So they were expecting Elijah at some point. They say, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. That in itself is kind of interesting because Jesus says he wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah, but he actually is the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. So I don't know if John's just parsing words with him or John may not have understood fully his role in God's plan. John was never, John the Baptist was not an omniscient fellow. So he says, no. They said, well, are you the prophet? Now Moses, at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of the books of Moses, had said, there's going to be a prophet who's going to come from amongst the people, who's going to be greater than I am. And for over a thousand years, Israel had been waiting for the prophet that had been promised by Moses. Are you the prophet? He said, no. They said, well, who are you? We've got to give an answer. These people sent us. You know, they said, go get an answer. Well, we can't go back and say, oh, that is not the way to succeed. Your boss gives you a job, you do the job. So you got to give us something. Throw me a bone here. That's the way we translated that in Lubbock. Throw us a bone. What do you say about yourself? He said, and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now that's an interesting passage. Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. 
the, the, the Hebrew, if we're reading it out of Hebrew, it says prepare the road of the Lord. Same thing, just gives you a little different feel. And the reason why that's important is that was not an unusual passage to be used in that day. First of all, I live on a street. It's got asphalt. How many of you live on an asphalt street? Or concrete? Okay, concrete or asphalt? Let's put them together. Does anybody live on a weedy road that gets overgrown where you got to go clear the weeds before you can get to your house? Six of you. Okay. Uh, Back then, especially in the country, they didn't have asphalt and paved roads. Oh, they would in the cities. They had, you go to the ruins of Ephesus and some of these other cities. But out in the country, by and large, you've got paths that are roads. And if someone's going to be walking down them, you periodically had to have someone who prepared it who took out the weeds, who kept it clean, who made it a road that you could more easily traverse in the day or the darkness without stumbling or falling. John the Baptist is there to prepare the road, language we're not familiar with, but to prepare the road for the Lord so that the Lord would be seen by people and people could make their journey to the Lord even as the Lord made his journey along. And so within the framework of that, that's who he is. Now, they said to him, okay, why are you baptizing? That's understandable if you're the Christ. It's understandable if you're Elijah. It's understandable if you're the prophet. But you're doing something like real new, and that's just not something ordinary people do. John says, I'm baptizing. I'm immersing people with water. But among you stands one that you're not even aware of. The one who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now that's pretty amazing. The next day, he sees Jesus coming toward him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now this is, this is the one whose shoe he's unable to tie. Okay, so within the framework of this, let's talk for a moment. You've got John the Baptist. He's a charismatic fellow. He's charming in some ways, maybe a bit gruff, but charismatic enough to where he's got a lot of people following him. He's captured the attention of the priests. There are boatloads of people all around him that are considering him someone special. He's subject of prophecy. He has the boldness of saying, Isaiah 40 verse 3, Isaiah, remember who Isaiah is? He's not like one of those prophets that you're not even sure if it's in the Old Testament or not. You remember when we were young, if you were my age, 
And we'd tell people to go look up and we'd make up some prophet sounding name and they'd start looking through the minor prophets to find it. Well, maybe y'all didn't do that. <laughs> Coach Max is over there like saying, what do you mean, man? We're running button hooks and flies. So, okay, sorry. But a few of us were like making Bible jokes. No, no, no. Isaiah's the great prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah's the one who in chapter 6 in the year King Uzziah dies has that awesome encounter with the Lord. High and lifted up. Touched by the coals to be a prophet. Sent by God. That's the Isaiah who wrote 700 years earlier. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist says, that's me. John the Baptist is the one whose parents were told by angels that he was special and a fulfillment of prophecy. John the Baptist has every reason in the world to walk in confidence in his ministry and eat whatever on earth he wants to. Dressed however he wants to dress. Confident that God is speaking a message through him and he's doing exactly what God called him to do. What an incredible man of God. And yet John the Baptist says that Jesus is, makes John feel like a minnow compared to Jesus as a whale. John is a candlelight. Oh, it's real useful. It'll help you get around at night. You can even use it to read compared to the sun that will bake you, bake this earth, create energy, create light, radiate, radiation. John says, I baptize with water, but before you stands one you don't know. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Look, I can untie my own shoes. We teach our kids to do that by, I don't know, in Lubbock we learned that by like 12 or 13. <laughs> age four, age five, four. Three, maybe, I don't remember. But they can learn that. We've got easy shoes for tying. We got easy shoes for sandals. But back in that day, it was a little different chore. Most people untied their own sandals. Not that it was easy. But man, they could have those things that had the laces that go around and that come up. And you walk around everywhere and they, they didn't, everything was dirty. And there were stickers. And you'd get dirt and stickers and you'd walk in poop and all the rest of this kind of stuff. It just wasn't a clean thing. And slaves were responsible for untying the sandals of their masters. Slaves were responsible for untying the sandals of their masters. Now, if you're a rabbi and you got students who follow you back in that day, the students were expected to do for you what slaves would do for their masters. 
But rabbinic teaching that was recorded in the Mishnah about 250 years into this era, 250 A.D., but it's recording oral statements that were from the time of Jesus and before and right after. Even the Mishnah said, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except loosing the sandal thong. I mean, some things like, we're not going that far. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy of being his slave. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Someone who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was older than Jesus in earthly form. But he recognized who Jesus was. Now, this is a fascinating phrase we could dwell on for some, but I don't want to dwell on it too long because we won't get through everything else. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to read through commentaries, and there's some great commentaries on John. Uh, D.A. Carson has one in the Pillar Commentary series. It's a marvelous commentary. One of my favorite theologians, Leon Morris, now dead, uh, Australian fella, wrote the New International Commentary of the New Testament Commentary on John. It's a marvelous commentary. You can read those, and you can read other commentaries, and you'll find scholars, like, there's at least 12 to 13 different views on just exactly what lamb is he talking about here. Is it a Passover lamb? Is it the lamb of the daily sacrifice? Is it the lamb of this? Is it the lamb of that? Is it the lamb of this? He doesn't say. This idea of Jesus being the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world becomes very prominent in early church teaching. But it's not really one you can tie to one specific lamb type sacrifice in the Old Testament. And so you got a bunch of scholars who are all in a tizzy trying to say, well, I wonder if he meant this. I wonder if he meant that. And I'm just looking at it saying, I think he may be the one who started what we've got now in the church. If you ever read how the brain works, here's a freebie. Your brain does shortcuts. Read Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I just spoke about it to a bunch of lawyers. One of those brain shortcuts is, is we tend to see everything in A or B. It's really hard for us to get the idea that it might be all of the above. We just tend to see it. Well, it's either black or it's white. Well, actually, Jesus is the fulfillment of more than one type of a lamb sacrifice in the Old Testament. He is the Pesach lamb, the Paschal lamb of the Passover. But he's also the lamb of the daily sacrifice. He's also the goat that's sent out as a scapegoat. On Yom Kippur. Jesus fulfills so many of those. That it's easy to just say this is the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. If you ever go to our chapel. I want you to look at the doors that you walk in. To go into the chapel. I had the doors carved in Guatemala. And I had them carve on the doors. 
what's called the Agnus Dei in Latin. It's the sacrificial lamb of God. And if you see those pictures of the lamb of God, you will notice the lamb going to sacrifice has a leg lifted up. Do you know why? Because he's going voluntarily. Dr. Bob, no, Meadow, come up here. Rick Meadow. Rick's Jewish, so it's easier for him. (laughs) Dr. Bob's Italian. He's too fussy. All right, I want you to stay here, and I want to tell you, I'm about to kill you. It's for good reasons. I need you dead. Okay? Come with me. Yeah, this is the way I'd be going. I'd be like, I ain't going to dead. Okay, thanks, buddy. The, the Lamb of God picture is because Jesus is going voluntarily. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That makes him different than every lamb sacrifice there ever was. Don't try and match it up. Because you won't find a lamb that says, here am I, send me. There are not a lot of lambs looking to, hey, I'll die for him. So let's keep moving. I'm getting bogged down. It's too easy to speak on this stuff. So the Messiah is the Son of God. John the Baptist says it. Next, Andrew. We'll do Andrew pretty quick because I want to spend some time with Nathaniel. Andrew says, Jesus is the Messiah. He's worthy of following, and he's worthy of bringing others. Pretty good. Let's see what Andrew says. Let's read the Andrew text. The next day again, John's standing with two of his disciples. One, two. He looks at Jesus as he walks by, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He says again next day. The two disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus. It's kind of like, well, we've been your disciple. He's the Lamb of God. See you. (laughs) They find a new uh, man to follow. Jesus turns and he sees them following him. And he says, what are you you doing? What are you seeking? It reads a little stilted to us because we don't speak that way. But he's just saying, what are y'all looking for? What, what, What do you want? What do you want might be a good familiar way to translate it and they said to him rabbi then john inserts which means teacher because rabbi is jewish john's writing out of ephesus it's a greek world and not everybody knew their hebrew or aramaic um rabbi which means teacher where are you staying Where, where are you headed where are you going he said well come on and you'll see So they came, they saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour, okay? Uh, Day started at six in the morning. So the 10th hour is what, four in the afternoon. So they stayed with him. It was about the 10th hour, about four in the afternoon. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Christ is not Jesus' second name. It's a translation of the 
It's the Greek word that means the same as the Hebrew word Mashiach, anointed. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You're going to be called Kephas, which means Peter. Now, Andrew follows Jesus, hears from him, listens to him, and immediately decides this is not only someone worth following, but someone worth going to get others to follow. And he goes and he gets Simon Peter. What happens if that never happens? Simon Peter comes. By the way, I love Jesus in this passage. This passage is really funny if you read Greek and if you read Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay? So he goes and he finds his own brother, Shimeon. Or Shimon in Hebrew is the way it would have been pronounced. Shimon, Simon. Shimon. Shimon's a good Hebrew name. It means someone who's a listener. Shimon. Shimon's also got a Greek cognitive, Simon. Simon is a Greek name as well. So Shimon could have gone into the Greek world and just been Simon. Saul did not have that advantage. Saul's name in Hebrew is Shaul. Greeks didn't have an SH sound. They can't say Sha anything, much less Shaul. So Paul just goes by his Latin name, Paulos, in, in the Mediterranean world. And they, when it gets written up, it gets written as Saul because you can't write sh in the Greek. Just, they don't have it. They just don't have it. They don't have that sound. Their tongue didn't make it. They couldn't write it. So you read Saul, but his name was Shaul. S-H-A-U-L. Got it? All right. Simon could have stuck by that name. It doesn't mean listener in Greek. It means flat nose. Jesus could have let old flat nose go out there to the Greek world and take the Bible to Rome. Start the church, Bob. <laughs> but old flat nose wasn't fit to do that, so instead he changes his name to Cephas in Greek, which is a uh, uh, rock. Or in Aramaic, uh, uh, or Petros in Greek, I'm sorry, it's Cephas. Kephe, Kepha, actually, Kepha. In, in Aramaic. It means you know, rocky. Okay? So he's going to flatten everyone else's nose. Well, flat nose. Um, so he changes his name to Rocky. It's also really cool, by the way, just as a side, since I'm clearly so messed up on time. It's also really cool because Jesus doesn't just do it. When you read this, he brings him to Jesus. And our Bibles say, verse 42... Jesus looked at him and said. There are different Greek words for the word look. This is not the common word for look. This is the word for thoughtfully considered. And so it's, it's like, it's the same word that's used in, by Jesus in, in Matthew where he says, consider the lilies of the field or consider the birds of the air. It doesn't just mean, oh, there it is. Not, oh, hey, you're son. I mean, he looks at him. He kind of looks him up and down. This is written in a way where you're getting, that you're, you're supposed to inject yourself into the feel of the narrative and what happened, into the storyline. 
It is kind of, here comes old flat nose. He comes grooving up slowly. He's got, oh no, that's a different song by the Beatles. I'm sorry. I'm clearly in the British invasion this morning. So here comes Simon. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, you are Shimon ben Yohanan, Simon's son of John. You're going to be called Peter. Kifa, rock, I got plans for you. And boy, did he ever. And that passage out of John 1, 35 through 42 is made possible by Andrew, who decided Jesus was not only worth following, but worth bringing others to. I got five minutes left. And I don't know how I'm going to tell you the Nathaniel story thoroughly in five minutes, but I'm going to give it to you because Dale Hearn is here and he says, I've got to spend at least one minute on each point for home. So we got two minutes on Nathaniel. I may do more next week on Nathaniel. I probably won't. So here it is. If you know the Old Testament story of Jacob, great. If not, read Genesis 27 30 through 33. Jacob is one of twin boys. There's Jacob and Esau. They're born to Isaac. Esau comes out first. But Jacob's holding his leg. Holding his heel. Jacob is named Yaakov in Hebrew. It means not only someone who takes the place of, but someone who grasps. And it had taken on the common idea of a trickster. A deceiver. One in whom there is guile, deceit. And that's really what Jacob grows up to be until God confronts Jacob after Jacob has tricked his brother out of his inheritance, has tricked his dad out of the blessing, dressing up in goat skin and pretending to his poor blind father that he's the older brother. And Jacob, the trickster, the deceiver, is on the run and he goes to sleep on the run and he has a dream and in the dream a ladder opens and angels are descending and ascending on the ladder or staircase technically in the the Hebrew. It's a staircase. They're ascending and descending. And he wakes up and he says, I'm going to name this place Bethel, Beit El, house of God. I'm going to name this place Bethel. Clearly, this is where God visits earth. This is his hangout. God changes his name. No longer shall you be called the deceitful one, the trickster, the one in whom is guile. Instead, you're going to be called Israel. And from Jacob comes forth all 12 tribes and the nation through whom God fulfills the promises that he'd given to Abraham and Isaac. That comes from the deceitful one. Now, how many of you have ever spent time thinking about a Bible story? Have you ever done that in your life? About 10% of you. We really need to work on that. Let me ask you again, recognizing we're running out of time. 
and I need help here. How many of you have ever spent time thinking about a Bible story? Thank you very much. So did Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's sitting under a tree. And if you had asked Nathaniel, what you been doing? He would say, let me tell you the story of my life. I was sitting under a tree and I was thinking about the story of Jacob. And up comes one of my relatives who says, come on, quick, come and see. You got to see this guy we found. Who? Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, why do I want to go to something from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just come and see. And as he's approaching, Jesus, who knows the hearts and the minds of people, says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And guile. Now, if you've just been having your quiet time and you've been reading about Jacob, the guileful one, the deceitful one who gets his name changed to Israel, you get interrupted in your quiet time by someone who wants you to come see someone who's magnificent. You're like, oh, great, here we go. What's my cousin found now? And you go up there and he says, oh, Israelite, in whom there is no deceit, no Jacob. If you'd been doing your quiet time on that at that point, you might be kind of like Nathaniel and respond with, uh, how, how did you know me? Uh, how, how do you know? How do you? And Jesus could say, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree where he was having his quiet time, I saw you. I discerned what was going on in your heart and your mind. And Nathaniel says, Rabbi, You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus said, just because I told you I knew what you were thinking under the fig tree, just because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see things greater than these. You may have been thinking about Jacob. You may have been thinking about Bethel. You may have been thinking about the ladder with the angels ascending and descending. But you're going to, you are going to see heaven opened. And you are going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Will y'all give me three more minutes, please? Do you know this song, Beneath the Cross of Jesus? I would lead you in this and sing it with you, but I can never make it through this song without crying. I want to give you a couple of the verses. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. The, a home within the wilderness. A rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Verse number two. I take, no it's O safe and happy shelter. O refuge tried and sweet. O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to that holy patriarch that wondrous dream was given. So seems my Savior's love to me. A ladder 
unto heaven. And then the last verse. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by. To know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame. My glory, all the cross. Who are you? He's Jesus, the Son of God. He is the reason that we can connect to God. He is this, his cross is the, the bridge between two worlds, ours and the Lord's. He is the nexus. He is the trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meets. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Messiah, the anointed. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of Israel. He is the prophet. He is the coming one. He is the solution to the problem of Garden of Eden sin. He is my everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and he will come again. So here is my take-home points. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I don't know about you as well as I know about me, but I'm desperate for that. And I rest in that. And I revel in that. And my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Jesus, worthy of following and bringing others. Oh, Andrew, thank you. By the way, every time you read about Andrew in the New Testament, he's bringing someone to Jesus. I want people to see Jesus. I want to take them to him. How do I do that? Well, bring them to church. Bring them to class. I promise you, I'll teach Jesus. Bring them. But also show them Jesus by how you live. Take Jesus to them. If they're hurting, cry with them. If they need something, meet their needs. Don't choose to love those that are lovable. Choose to love the ones that you want to yell at. Or laugh at. Or scoff at. Or write off. Jesus the connection point of God and his people. You'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May God bless you. I'm going to bless you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray your blessings on everyone uh, and I ask you to, to touch them with the sacrifice of Jesus. I, I, I've got no more requests, Father. No more requests. In Jesus' name, amen.